We in this country have seen many new faces. People from all parts of the British Commonwealth and Empire and from the Allied nations. These are among the last pictures to be taken in the capital of the Gold Coast. For when this day is over, Accra becomes the capital of Ghana, an independent nation within the Commonwealth. Hello everybody and welcome to Hello from Britain, a Black British History podcast, a podcast focusing on histories of Black British women in the 20th century. Yes, I am back again. I told you you're going to get two episodes this month, so that's what I'm providing. And again, we're getting two episodes next month as well. And today's episode, we're going to talk about women and the organisation of women of African and Asian descent, better known as OAD. So let's just jump into it. OAD was formed in Coventry in spring 1978 by a group of 15 black women, including Gurleen Bean, Stella Dadsey and Gail Lewis. It was an umbrella organisation, bringing together several different women's groups, including the UK ZANU Women's League and the South African Black Women's Self-Help Alliance, together under one banner. By the time OAD organised their first conference in 1979, at least 300 women were in attendance. Much like the Brixham Black Women's Group, the organisation was formed due to the sexism of the Black Power movement and the racism of the mainstream women's movement. However, OWED members made a point to emphasise that the impetus of their organisation was not rooted in a desire to exclude men. Instead, it came from a desire for them, as black women, to be able to stand up for themselves. In this way, OWED was not too dissimilar from the Combahee River Collective, an American group set up by a group of black women in 1974 who argued that they needed their own organising group because, quote, sexual politics under patriarchy is as pervasive in black women's lives as are the politics of class and race, end quote. Similarly, the OWAD draft constitution read that, quote, our belief in the right of black women to organise autonomously is based on our belief that any group of people who suffer a specific type of oppression have this right. As black women, we suffer triple oppression based on our race, our class and our sex. We therefore need our own organisations and groups which can fight on all three fronts. We cannot divorce our position as women from our historical and present day experiences of racism." Triple oppression is a concept most often associated with Claudia Jones, mentioned in episode four of this podcast series, a woman who many of OWAD's co-founders admired. At the beginning of the movement, many OWAD members were particularly concerned about the impact of imperialism on women abroad, particularly on the African continent. However, as time went on, until OWAD disbanded in the early 1980s, the focus became more on things happening in the UK. This included protests around the controversial contraceptive drug Depo-Provera, protests against detentions and exclusions of black children at schools, the establishment of black supplementary schools, which would provide weekend classes to black children so that they could learn more about their history and heritage, and campaigns around increasing access to education for women and girls. Many of OWAD's campaigns and protests were documented in their member newsletter, FOWAD, that's F-O-W-A-A-D. Some articles from FOWAD may be found in the Black Cultural Archives today. It is noteworthy that OWAD was initially called the Organisation of Women of African Descent in spring 1978 before becoming the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent in winter 1978 in recognition of similarities between Black and South Asian experiences in Britain. 
Much like other late 20th century anti-racist activist groups in Britain, a word practiced solidarity between black people and South Asian people and would even often refer to South Asian people as black also. Indeed, OWAD's draft constitution states that the organisation disagrees with the quote, apartheid mentality which accepts such divisive and irrelevant labels as coloured or half-caste, and we organise on the principle that racism and economic exploitation are far more significant to us than ethnic and cultural diversity, end quote. Due to this, OWAD organised on behalf of women of sub-Saharan African descent and South Asian descent. This meant that, as well as campaigning against restrictive immigration legislation and police brutality, they also campaigned against things like virginity testing. The idea that all non-white people in Britain, and particularly South Asian people, should be understood as black is known as political blackness. Several black activist groups in late 20th century Britain understood blackness in a politically black sense. Perhaps this was due to what post-colonial scholar Gayatri Spivak recognised long ago when she coined the term strategic essentialism, arguing that it may be politically strategic for members of minority groups to act on the basis of shared identity in the interest of gaining rights. It is important, however, to not overstate the prevalence of political blackness in late 20th century activist Britain. As British sociologist Tariq Madud has noted, most South Asians in Britain do not identify as black in the late 20th century. In fact, in the 80s, a deputy chairman of the Commission for Racial Equality estimated that about 70% of South Asians resented being called black, 10% identified as black, and the rest identified as black with, quote, qualifications, end quote. This is unsurprising. Firstly, because the term black has long had a global significance for people of sub-Saharan African descent. And secondly, while there were some similarities between black and South Asian experiences in late 20th century Britain, there were many dissimilarities. For example, the vast majority of the black people in Britain in the late 20th century were English speaking, and a large number came from a Christian background. In contrast, a sizable proportion of South Asian people in Britain held non-Abrahamic religious beliefs that did not come from an English-speaking background. Therefore, Tariq Madud noted that while, quote, white working-class youth culture was incorporating, indeed emulating, young black men and women, end quote, in late 20th century Britain it was, quote, hardening against groups like South Asians, end quote. Calling everyone black was thus thought by some to minimise the different experiences between South Asian and black people in Britain. Indeed, sociologist Robert Miles argued that political blackness was having a negative impact on South Asian communities in Britain because it was causing politicians and academics to only grant members of the South Asian diaspora a quote, walk on part, end quote, in conversations about race and culture in Britain. It is also important to recognise that many black people felt that there were major issues with anti-black racism within South Asian communities in Britain. Therefore, they did not feel comfortable with South Asian people describing themselves as black. Indeed, Gorinda Chada, the famed British Asian director of Bend It Like Beckham, explored the issue of anti-black racism in South Asian communities in her 1993 film Barge on the Beach, in which a British Asian woman fell pregnant by a black man and was faced with family criticism for doing so. By the end of the 20th century, political blackness was extremely unpopular, although vestiges of it can be found today. UK black pride is, quote, 
Europe's largest celebration for LGBTQI plus people of African, Asian, Caribbean, Latin American and Middle Eastern descent, end quote. And the National Union of Students, Black Students Campaign is the, quote, largest organisation of black students in Europe and represents all students of African, Arab, Asian and Caribbean heritage, end quote. I must confess, as someone who grew up without knowledge of political blackness, it was quite jarring for me when I first encountered the concept upon joining the National Union of Students, or NUS. I remember being told that Malia Bouatia, a woman of North African descent, was the first black president of the NUS and being quite confused. I remember Kent Student Union getting into a lot of trouble for putting Zayn Malik and Sadiq Khan in promotional material for Black History Month and then later explaining their actions by pointing to NUS material. I remember the NUS Black Students Campaign later voting to change their name, albeit the name changes yet to come into effect. And I also remember debating with British South Asian journalist Yasmin Alibi Brown about political blackness. She was of the opinion that she should have the right to describe herself as black and that to say that she was not black was as divisive as British nationalists saying that non-white people cannot be British. Because I grew up in the 21st century, not the 20th, I find political blackness to be an alien concept and I am resistant to it. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to describe non-black people as black. However, I say that while acknowledging that the idea that someone of sub-Saharan African descent is quote-unquote black is a social construct. In the 1800s, scientists, and I'm using the term scientists loosely here, came up with various ideas about race. Some, for example, believed in monogenesis, believing that all humans were of the same species, but that different environments had led to white people being more civilised than others. Others believed in polygenesis, believing that different human races were from different species. However, most, regardless of whether they adopted monogenism or polygenism, constructed racial hierarchies that put darker-skinned or black people at the bottom and lighter-skinned or white people at the top. Due to this history, some argue that it is irrelevant to take seriously the idea that some people are black and others are not black. If the concept of blackness stems from white supremacy, if the concept of race, to quote Kwame Anthony Appiah, is our quote, structure whose realisation is at best problematic and at worst impossible, end quote, why should we entertain it? Well, as academic Barry Shank puts it, the ramifications of social constructs do not, quote, disappear just because someone has shown them to be false concepts. Constructs build up historical residue, which then gives shape and form to lived experience, end quote. And for many people of sub-Saharan African descent, the construct of blackness has long given shape and form to lived experience and makes many want to hold on to it as an exclusive category. I do not think this is a bad thing. Of course, one could get into debates within the black community about who is black and who is not black, but I'm not going to get into that because that is way too much to unpack for this podcast episode. 
Some suggest that the decline of political blackness in the 20th century was one of the reasons why OAD eventually disbanded in the early 1980s. As feminist academic Heidi Safia Mirza has argued, quote, OAD folded under pressure from within to assert heterogeneous identities. The desire for visibility through celebrating cultural, religious and sexual difference characterised the struggle in the 1980s, end quote. With regard to pressure from within to assert heterogeneous identities, it is also noteworthy that some attribute OAD's demise to its failure to adequately deal with concerns raised by LGBTQ members. While some high-profile members of OAD were lesbians, many within the organisation felt as though OAD was not doing enough to discuss the marginalisation of black women based on sexual orientation. In the end then, it appears that OAD disbanded, at least in part, due to identity politics. There's a sad irony to that, because OAD formed, at least in part, because of identity politics. The term identity politics was coined by the Combahee River Collective, who argued that the, quote, most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression, end quote. This makes sense, and I think identity politics as a concept makes sense for a lot of people. Most people who fight for change fight for change at least in part because a change they seek to make will benefit people within their identity group. However, difficulties often arise when people understand their identity differently from others in their identity group, or when they do not understand how their identity group could have cause for coalition with another identity group. Perhaps this is why British Asian academic Avtar Bra said of Owad that, quote, Instead of embarking on the complex and necessary task of identifying the specificities of particular oppressions, understanding their interconnections with other oppressions and building a politics of solidarity, some women were beginning to differentiate these oppressions into hierarchies of oppression. The mere act of naming oneself as a member of an oppressed group was assumed to vest one with moral authority, end quote. Recognising this issue, Perhaps this is why a co-founder of OAD, Seladadzi, later said in an interview that while identity politics is an invaluable activist tool, you have to be careful with it because, quote, if your politics start with me, myself and I, and you're looking for issues because you relate to them, rather than relating to issues because they affect all of us and need addressing, then you could end up with a skewed view of politics, end quote. Food for thought. Before I leave you, let me give you a quick anecdote, as is usual, for this podcast. Now, in the late 20th century, one particular international issue was causing great concern amongst black women in Britain. Can you guess what it was? It was South African apartheid. As I noted briefly, in OAD's draft constitution, it was argued that it was crucial for black women to embrace political blackness so as to reject an quote, apartheid mentality, end quote. The reference to apartheid reflected the political reality of the late 20th century, when many black activists in Britain were becoming more and more energised against apartheid in South Africa. As poet and activist Linton Kwesi Johnson explained, many felt that, quote, as long as the apartheid system existed in South Africa, black people could not see themselves anywhere in the world as being really free, end quote. Therefore, it is unsurprising that many black women in Britain organised against apartheid. 
This included famous Royal Shakespeare Company actress Josette Simon, who performed in Hyde Park in support of freeing Nelson Mandela, and Black Labour Party member Sharon Atkin. There was even a South Africa Women's Day Festival organised by the British anti-apartheid movement on the 9th of August 1987 in Finsbury Park. Angela Davis and Ruth Monpati were the keynote speakers. A key organiser of the South Africa Women's Day Festival was the anti-apartheid movement, one of the major anti-apartheid groups in Britain. However, while British anti-apartheid groups were great at highlighting inequalities that black women were facing in Africa, they were not so great at incorporating black British voices into their organising. That is why, in 1983, anti-apartheid movement organiser Judy Kimball wrote a letter in the movement newsletter, arguing that it was a, quote, cruel irony that the movement in the UK, which is actively committed to fighting racism in Southern Africa, the crime against humanity represented by apartheid, continues to reproduce itself as a predominantly white movement at home. This is a terrible reflection of the complexity of the problem of racism and of the extremely heavy weight of the British imperialist past, from which none of us are free, end quote. Strong words, and words that may ring true for many of us who witness people become animated by issues abroad while ignoring similar issues at home. <laughs>